As director of the Future of Humanity Institute, Professor Nick Bostrom has a mandate to study a bewildering array of future possibilities for humanity. In this podcast, Professor Bostrom discusses global catastrophic risks and his earlier work on the simulation theory. Well, the Future of Humanity Institute is a multidisciplinary research institute set up within the philosophy faculty here at Oxford. And our mission is to try to apply excellent scholarship to big-picture questions for humanity. For example, questions such as what might happen to humanity in the future if we use increasingly powerful technology, not just to change the world around us, building faster cars and whatever, but also to change human nature itself. So human enhancement technologies uh, might be used in the future to improve cognitive capacities, extend lifespan, or change our emotional personality profiles and so forth. So human transformation would be one big picture issue. Another would be global catastrophic risks and existential risks, uh, ways in which what we take for granted as being the human condition now could be destroyed through some untoward event, whether war or accidents or pandemics or other things. Also, we're interested in the potential implications of transformative future technologies, such as advanced nanotechnology or artificial intelligence, technologies that, if and when they are developed, could be expected to profoundly impact the human condition. So these types of questions have often been ignored or rather relegated to, say, journalists or retired physicists or done as a hobby on the side. But we think that these questions are actually very important and that they deserve at least the same kind of scholarly effort that you would devote normally to research questions like what are the life cycle of the dung fly or some other typical scientific question like that. So we are doing research in each of those four areas, human enhancement, ethics, global catastrophic risks, future technologies, and we're also paying a lot of attention to the methodological questions that arise in thinking about these topics and questions of rationality, and probability theory, and probabilistic forecasting. With such a broad mandate as the, the big pictures, how do you target specific issues within that area? Well, so rather than trying to cover everything within this almost unlimited mandate, what we do is to try to pick particular questions where it's possible to get an analytic foothold, where there is something useful you can actually say, some useful research that you can actually do. And I don't think there is a simple algorithm for identifying those questions. That's where practice and intuition and creativity comes in. To some extent, of course, we also pick questions based on what we happen to be able to do, so depending on our own previous expertise and might be particular questions that are more tractable to us. But we spend a significant amount of time thinking about the question of all the possible things we could do. What is actually the most important thing we could do? Rather than just begin drilling down where you happen to find yourself, first to think carefully about which are the questions that most need answering and reflecting about that. I think this is something that it would be good if, if more scientists began doing. A lot of academic, I think, end up where they are almost by accident. They have a charismatic you know, undergraduate teacher in some area and they go 
study more in that field and then and they have a supervisor who's working in some subfield of that so they end up doing a thesis in that and then they spend the rest of their life pursuing that particular kind of research but never actually taking a step back and thinking about of all the different academic pursuits I could devote my life to which one would I make the biggest difference in you talked about the important issues existential threats and global catastrophic risk strikes as being very important. Could you tell us what they are and give us some examples? Of them? Well, so existential risk is one that threatens either to cause the extinction of Earth-originating intelligent life or to permanently and drastically destroy its potential for future desirable development. A global catastrophic risk, that's a wider category, so it includes all existential risks. But in addition, it also includes scenarios in which humanity survives, but a globally significant degree of damage. So a small nuclear war would be a global catastrophic risk, but it wouldn't be an existential risk. We are interested in existential risks especially because, well, first of all, it's from one perspective a much more serious concern than pretty much anything else that could happen to humanity. An existential disaster would be one which would terminate the human experiment, as it were. It, it would be the, the end of the, the human story. We would not have a second chance to try different approaches if we succumb to an existential disaster. Whereas um, from some detached impersonal perspective, you could think that there have been many global catastrophes throughout human history. There have been wars and plagues and volcano eruptions and tsunamis. But even the worst of these disasters that have caused several millions of deaths have really only been like ripples on the great pond of humanity. They haven't significantly changed the total amount of, of human happiness and suffering or the total amount of human insight and creativity that there will ever have been. Whereas an existential catastrophe is different in kind in the sense that if we're all gone or if we're permanently uh, if our potential has been permanently destroyed, then it's not just the present generation that will suffer, but our whole future has been removed from us as well. Well, that's one of the reasons why existential risks are particularly deserving of attention. But it makes sense to base the study on of existential risks on, on a broader basis. So that's why we're also doing a global catastrophic risks. And many particular threats are best studied together. So take something, you know, an asteroid impact. It's a very very small threat, but, but a real one. But obviously asteroids can come in all different sizes, and it's only the most extreme ones that would amount to existential disasters. But if you're going to study the, uh, the hazard posed by asteroid impacts, it makes no sense to only look at the really big boulders that could fall from space. You really have to think about the whole distribution of impacts. And similarly for several of the other risk types, like wars, can come in many different sizes. Pandemics can come in many different sizes. For that reason, we don't have an exclusive focus on existential risks, but we look at global catastrophic risks more generally. At what point would a disaster become a global catastrophic risk? Well, that's really a vague concept. So, I mean, if, if it cost 10 million deaths or a trillion dollars of damage or something, it would probably count as a global catastrophe. If it cost... 10,000 deaths or, you know, $10 billion of damage, it would not. But between that, it's really a matter of arbitrary definition. Whereas existential catastrophes, it's a much more natural kind in a sense. And so consider these 
three possibilities. So possibility one, there is no disaster. Possibility two, there is a disaster of some kind and 99% of all humans die in it. And possibility three is that there is a disaster and all humans die. Now one view is that the difference between the first two possibilities is greater than the difference between the second two possibilities. So many more people die in the second possibility. If 99% of all human beings die, that's six and a half billion people dying compared to none if there is no disaster. The third possibility only includes another 60 million people or so. So from one perspective, not a very big difference, but from another perspective, the difference between the second and the third possibility is vastly greater because if only 99% of us die, we might eventually repopulate the Earth and our humanity's long-term future might not be very different from the scenario in which nothing bad had happened. So here you have a situation where what moral theory you have, like what value theory you have, will make a huge difference as to the relative ranking of these different possible disasters. We're talking about these disasters as if they're single events. Can they also be ongoing? Yeah, so with global catastrophic risks in particular, it would be perverse indeed if the concern about mitigating potential things that could go wrong distracted us from remedying things that actually currently are going wrong on a massive scale. So you can worry about terrorist attacks or asteroid impacts or whatever, but if you forget that there are actually currently diseases, for example, that kill you know millions a year, then you might get your priorities wrong. And for that matter, we shouldn't only think of diseases like malaria or AIDS, but also diseases like heart disease and cancer, which kill even more people than AIDS and malaria do. And for that matter, if you're really interested in saving human life and averting human misery and disability, then the biggest of all causes of death, of course, is aging, which for some reason is not seen as catastrophic. It's interesting to think about why that is. And indeed, forcing those kinds of questions about proportion and why certain aspects of the human condition are seen as tragic, whereas other aspects of the human condition, which from a certain point of view cause even more human death and misery and suffering, are just taken for granted and perhaps even excused at being in some sense natural or wholesome. It's interesting to push these kinds of questions because we are not very good as a species currently at thinking about these really big questions. So that's one place where our institute is trying to, to make a difference by encouraging people to try to think more rationally about these really big questions and try to get the overall priorities and proportions right. How do you break through the barrier of people perceiving ageing as not being a, a disaster and an asteroid strike as being an ex- a disaster? Well, as regards to the ethics of ageing and the desirability of spending a lot of money trying to find ways of slowing ageing, I mean, I have argued in a paper that there is a kind of blindness with regard to ageing. Um, you know, I can speculate why that is. Perhaps it's because it's always been with us, because we have never been able to do anything about it, that we accommodate ourselves to this inevitability by finding a way to think about it as if it were a good thing. Well, I have this fable of the dragon tyrant, which I wrote a few years ago, where there is a story, there is a big dragon that is tyrannizing the land and requiring a tribute Every day he's eating up a lot of people, old people, and and there is a debate about whether the king in that country should 
try to fund some project to develop a missile that could shoot down the dragon so that it doesn't have to eat all these people. And um, the same arguments that have been made against biogerontological research aimed to fix aging is made in this fable by the opponents to this proposal by the anti-dragonist. And in the end, of course, the uh, people in the fable realized that it would be madness not to try to uh, do something about this horrible beast that is eating a lot of people every day. And they embark uh, vigorously on a sort of Manhattan project with great urgency to try to complete this missile. And, and in the end, they do it. But they are kicking themselves that it took them so long to get started on this. Now, the argument presented at the end of this fable is that our situation with regard to aging is exactly isomorphic, exactly parallel to the situation of the people in the fable with regard to the dragon that is tyrannizing them. So I've made it so that the numbers are the same in each case. Uh, the dragon only eats older people. The administration of uh, moving the people who are to be eaten by the dragon to the mountain where the dragon lives takes up 15% of the GDP of this fictional country in the fable, and that's the same proportion that we spend on healthcare. And so this, the argument is that, that these are exactly parallel. So that's one kind of ethical argument you can do, is to try to find some case which everybody agrees about what should be done, and then you make the argument that that's parallel to the case that is more controversial, and that then shifts the, the burden of proof, as it were, on those who reject this analogy to point out exactly what the relevant moral difference is. There are many other ways in which you can argue in practical ethics or in moral theory, but... Um, that that would be one. How can you apply sustained academic study when there are an infinite number of possibilities of, of risk and the causality between different risks causing different risks? Well, I mean, the same problem could be exist in, in, in many other areas that academics are wrestling with. So if you are a sociologist or an anthropologist, I mean, clearly a society is a very complex system where an innumerable quantity of different factors and groups and people and institutions can interact in ways. So I don't think there's a general formula for how you handle those kinds of complex systems, but you have to rely on insight and expertise in, in making the relevant distinctions and in identifying some sub-problem that you can say something useful about and then hoping that what you say about this sub-problem can help illuminate you know, the, the bigger question that you started out with. You hack away at the big problem by making small contributions, but you don't necessarily try to solve the whole big problem in one fell swoop. And you also look at how people think and understand about risk. Risk perception, well, to some extent. I mean, what we are really interested in is the question of rationality, and in particular, human biases and, and probabilistic forecasting and how we can become better at that. And applying that not only to the study of risk, but also to other items within our purview. So the reason is that one way you can have more accurate beliefs is by learning more about some specific discipline or area or domain that you're trying to form. So if you want to know about which mushrooms are poisonous, you go and study some book about poisonous mushrooms and you learn a lot about that. And similarly, if you want to know about what taxation policy we should have, you could learn about the economics relevant to taxation policy and so forth. And that is obviously a big part of what we should do. But in addition to learning more specific facts, we can also make improvements in the accuracy of our beliefs by removing general biases. 
and distortions that affect our beliefs not just about one specific thing but that might skew our beliefs more generally and there is a fairly extensive literature by now on heuristics and cognitive biases that has been developed by experimental economists cognitive psychologists and others working over several decades so if you can identify one of these biases and then remove it you might in one swoop get a much more accurate set of opinions about a wide range of different things and sometimes that can do more to correct your beliefs than accumulating an even larger pile of specific facts so one example would be our overconfidence bias so human beings tend to be too confident in the accuracy of their beliefs in many areas it seems to me in particular about these big picture questions so just by recognizing the poor past track record of predictions in these areas, recognizing the existence of persistent disagreements, and then applying that to your own belief, saying that, well, why should I be so sure that I'm right when all these other intelligent people who have tried to be right have got it all wrong? Uh, you can improve the accuracy of your beliefs quite significantly by just moving your probabilities closer to 50% instead of assigning 99.9 .9 probabilities left, right, and center. Uh, and there are other biases like that which if taken into account it can help improve the accuracy of your beliefs so thinking in general about these questions of rationality applied rationality i think is a very powerful way of making progress on some of these uh, big picture questions having talked about existential threats you've also done work on the nature of existence and the, the simulation the nature of existence yeah well no i mean there was one paper i wrote on what i call the simulation argument it's not so much an area that i'm doing work in it was more this one idea for an argument i came up with which i published which tries to establish that one of three possibilities obtains it doesn't tell us which one of these three but anyway the three possibilities is one, that almost all civilizations at our current stage of technological development go extinct before they become technologically mature. The second possibility is that there is a very strong convergence among all sufficiently advanced civilizations such that they all lose interest in creating what I call ancestor simulations. So these would be simulations using some powerful future computers that would be detailed enough that the simulated people in these simulations would actually be conscious. So not something we can build today, but you could imagine perhaps that some super advanced civilization might be able to create such computer simulations of people like their historical ancestors and simulate them such that the simulated people were actually conscious. And the third possibility is that we are almost certainly living in a computer simulation, in a literal sense, that we simulated creatures in a computer that would be built by some advanced civilization. So those are the three possibilities. And the argument shows using some you know, relatively simple mathematics and algebra, that probability theory, that if you reject all of these three possibilities, you get sort of probabilistic incoherence using some other assumptions as well, fairly weak assumptions. So the conclusions from that is that at least one of these three must be true. But, as I said, the argument doesn't tell us which one. The um, simulation argument has often been misrepresented as being the claim that we are in a simulation. So I'm often alleged to be 
having asserted that that I think that we are in a simulation, which is not true. I don't think that we are in a computer simulation. But I do think the simulation argument is sound. But I don't think we have enough evidence to pick which one of these three possibilities is the true one. What other possibilities are there for future technologies? Well, so any number of possible future technologies that you might predict, but a lot of these are mainly gadgetry or they won't fundamentally transform the human condition. A lot of others are more incremental in that they will make some industrial process slightly more efficient and contribute very slightly to economic growth. So for all of those, it's not necessarily to study them individually. We can look at their joint effect, which is you know, the prediction that we might see a continuation of what we have seen in the past, which is exponential economic growth. So the world economy continues to grow at the rate of you know, 4% a year or something. So that's important in itself, because if you are thinking about the impact of some process, like, I don't know, global warming on future generations, you have to take into account what kind of wealth that they might be expected to have if we extrapolate current trends. So these people living 100 years from now, under the default scenario that things continue as they have in the past 100 years, will be perhaps 40 times richer on average than we are. But anyway, there are some technologies that have the potential to change in a more interesting way, sort of ground rules for the human condition. So one of these would be artificial intelligence, which if it could be brought to a level where it equals or exceeds human intelligence, would have profound consequences. Other possible technologies might include different and very powerful forms of weapons technologies, the ability to create pathogens with new properties, which could pose a big risk. Other technologies might include surveillance technologies or better forms of lie detection or mind reading technologies or brain manipulation technologies, which could also change the, the range of possibilities in interesting ways. And human enhancement technologies. For example, pharmacological or genetic or information technological means of enhancing human intelligence. So the reason why that's important is that most other things that we do are channeled through the bottleneck of human intelligence. So all technological inventions we make, all scientific discoveries we make, and a lot of strategizing and social organizing is all funneled through you know, the human mind where human intelligence forms a bottleneck for how many new ideas an inventor can come up with or how many insights a scientist can come up with. So if you change that circumference of that bottleneck of human intelligence, you will affect not just human intelligence, but all these other things that depend on human intelligence as well. So that's one of those potential leverage points where a small change could have a big effect.